0: Um, don't you love that last song? I mean, I liked all the songs, but, uh, the line that stood out to me this morning was Defender of my weary heart. And a couple things about that. One, we live in a fallen world, so we will get weary, but even if things are going great, that's the thing, right? You don't have, things don't have to be falling apart for you to get weary. But the Lord Jesus is the defender when our heart is weary. So praise the Lord for that. We are in Nehemiah chapter 12 this morning. You've got uh, 10. Remember, a third of this book is about the wall. A third is about repentance and worship. And the other third is numbers and genealogy. And chapters 10 and 11 is almost all numbers and genealogy. So uh, there's already already lots of names in in this chapter, which I'll read in just a bit. Last summer, uh, during our sabbatical, I think I shared a little bit about this. We had the opportunity to visit about 10 different churches, which was super helpful because just to see what's going on in different churches, how they do things, etc. So that was a blessing. Heard a lot of good sermons o- o- over that time. And, but interestingly, one of my, my, my favorite sermon was preached by a youth pastor who was preaching his first ever sermon. And it was really, I mean, it was solid biblically, and, and it, was, it was amazing. Uh, and we, we heard a lot of worship music. And uh, one, we didn't really care for because it doesn't, doesn't really fit who we are. It certainly doesn't fit who Grace Church is. Uh, there'd be a, you know, a roaming camera down here sort of zooming in on guitarists and drummers and that sort of thing. So, you know, it might be good for them, but it doesn't fit who we are. But the, the, the church, we really appreciated. Was Dave Hart's church in Wausau? And even though their music selection was different than ours, one thing that they did in their singing is what do you think they did? They sang. Yeah, they sang. They're like us, they're a singing church. And again, I, uh, I say this often how much I appreciate that we are a singing church, as you were just moments ago. But there was one thing we did not experience in any of those churches a choir. You surprised by that? No, no, what do you mean? No, no church choirs? Are you kidding me? Now, I grew up with a church choir. In fact, uh, this was my church growing up, uh, and that was a massive pipe organ. I used to sit as a kid and just, it was sort of mesmerizing, looking at these various sized pipes and these little doors moving, and to this day, I still don't know what the doors do at the top of the pipes, maybe somebody can tell me that. Sadly, there was no gospel in this church, so I did not come to know the Lord in this church. But the last church I was a part of that had a choir was my former church over 25 years ago, and that's about the time I think choirs sort of started going away slowly. I'm sure you could find them in some churches, but, and I don't know exactly why tradition or maybe the, the worship teams have sort of replaced choirs, but um, they're sort of phased out for the most part. And I thought, you know, many of us in this church may never have experienced a church choir. You you barely know what I'm talking about. But my point this morning is not to bemoan the loss of choirs, but rather introduce you to this double choir in Nehemiah chapter 12, because these choirs feature prominently in this passage If you have section titles in your Bible, yours should read The Dedication of the Wall. The wall was dedicated way back, uh, from our perspective, in chapter 6. Now, finally, in chapter 12, it's being dedicated. There there wasn't that much time in between. Uh, We don't know exactly how long. But you'll see there are two enormous choirs, and they're on top of the newly completed wall. So this is a big, big deal. And I'm going to pick up at verse 27 to the end if you want to follow along. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the village of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people in the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the Dungate, and after them went Hoshaiah, and half the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, the son of Mattaniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melali, Gilali, Maai, Nathanel, Judah, and Hanani, Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yashana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. And I and half of the officials with me. And the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Minamin, Ma- Micaiah, Eloanai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets. And Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzziah, Johanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Azar. And the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of of Aaron. Well, it's quite a, a mouthful of names there. Uh, I, I sort of wish he would skip those, you know, but it's just part of the biblical history, how important the genealogy is. You know, this, this testifies, it's part of what testifies to the truthfulness, to the historicity, the accurate historical record. So even those things are important. A uh, lot of names like other parts of Nehemiah, but I want to pick out one name in particular to focus on for a few moments And it's this one. And the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader. Jezrehiah is what we might call today the worship leader, or we might call him the lead worshiper. Uh, Now, all we know about Jezrehiah specifically is contained in this one verse, but because he was a Levite and and a singer, we can sort of use the biblical record to learn a lot more about him, construct some of his life, really. And I'm going to do this for a few moments just to sort of illustrate because there's a lot of details here that's going on that we're not used to, we're not familiar with, all these choirs. So I want to paint a story of Jezreel so we understand what was happening here. He, of course, was a Levite. uh, So he would have been a a direct descendant of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. The Levites were priests. They were the priestly uh, tribe, but some of the Levites were also musicians and singers. So two main roles of, of Levites priests and uh, singers, and they were passed down probably from the generations. You, you, you may have always been, this line may have always been musicians, this line may have always been priests, maybe they would switch roles over the generations, that we're not sure of. And then based on the history in this table, just a very brief history of some of the times surrounding Nehemiah here. Uh, I'm going to assume that Jezrehiah's grandfather returned from Babylon in 537 B.C. We've talked about this, the proclamation of Cyrus, given uh, by Isaiah 200 years before it actually happened. But why I think his grandfather would have returned there is because there were about 50,000 exiles returned from Babylon and Jerusalem in 537, but the second return in 458, only a couple thousand. So we could just say odds are he probably would turn in that first large group of of exiles. And if he did live in Babylon, and he was at at least uh, attained some some age where he can understand, do you see what he has? He has stories of what it's like to live as an exile in Babylon. Do you think he would have shared those stories with his children and his grandchildren? Absolutely. Remember, no books here. This was an oral culture. All the stories uh, were told that way. So, so storytelling was built into their culture just as the genealogical record and being able to trace that all the way back to Aaron and further back was also part of their culture. So you can imagine sitting around the feet of Jezrehi's grandfather hearing these stories. Jezrehi then is going to continue telling those stories. But just to build the story a little bit, so, so going off the biblical record, just make us think, okay, what if, uh, let's assume, I'm going to assume that Jezreiah, Jezreiah had four sons and three daughters. And we learned back uh, earlier in, in Nehemiah that uh, when they were having trouble feeding, you know, having enough food for everybody, part of the problem was they had large families, lots of people. Uh, so to have a family of seven kids would not have been uh, out of question at all. And, of course, as a priest, passed down for 900 years, he, of course, would, would have wanted to have sons so he could continue those generations of Levitical priesthood. Um, so almost certain, then, that Jezrehiah's grandfather was a singer and a musician, uh, passed down to him. So what all this means is that Levites, like Jezrehiah, were full-time, this is, this is all they did, full-time worship leader, and ordained worship leader, he was certainly highly trained musician. He'd probably been mastering his craft since he was a small child, right? We all know what's like. You, you you send your kids at some age off to piano lessons, uh, you know, and that may or may not take over the years. Uh, but then you see some of these real young children playing violin, just you know, so beautifully. So young kids can pick up certain instruments very, very young. So this was his culture. This was, this was his upbringing. Uh, you know, so he's, he's practicing since he was a young boy, just as his father had done, just as his grandfather had done, and who knows how many uh, uh, generations prior to that. Jezreeliah's family was what we would call a musical family. Uh, the music just ran through their veins, right? Some, some families, just, it doesn't seem fair. I mean, they can just look at an instrument, and they can start playing it. You know, the rest of us like, no, man, I would never be able to learn that, or I can't really carry a tune that well. Well, his was a musical family. So we can imagine, however many sons he did have, were all practicing their musical instruments together under the tutelage of, certainly, uh, of uh, their father, and perhaps uh, gathering with uh, other families and, and working together on their craft. We can certainly assume Jezreiah was highly skilled at what he did. He was certainly highly dedicated. And we can know that because he was chosen to be the lead singer of this most awesome day of worship. You know, I think Jezreiah would look back on this day, you know, Thousands and thousands of singers, you know, 100,000, 150,000 people uh, gathered around and listening, probably joining in on the singing. Uh, he would look back and, uh, and say, that was an amazing day. This was a day for which would make his family extremely proud. But at the same time, can you imagine how humbling that would have been for him? Uh, to, to all we know about the history and the dedication of the wall, that he got to be that Person, that leader of this amazing event, uh, bearing the joyful responsibility of leading all the Jews in worship as they dedicated the wall. And I think the true celebration of this dedication is seen in verse 43, as you've already seen this verse up there, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This, this phrase is literally packed full with meaning, uh, one of the most obvious things we can take away from it is it was loud, right I mean they're on on top of the wall, thousands of singers heard far away. we don 't know how far away, but it was far so the the sound was traveling and traveling. Uh, the closest thing I could ever approximate was uh, how, how many you ever been to a promise keeper event that was that was a thing A few of you. I was up in Minneapolis from our church in Sauk Prairie, and i'd been a pastor just a couple months, and the it's uh, Coach McCartney. He was the uh, pretty much the the leader of that movement, and he called all the pastors down to the to the floor. This was Metrodome in the old Viking Stadium in Minneapolis. Call us down on the floor, and then sort of worked up all the men to start cheering and, and banging whatever they're doing to to sort of honor us as pastors. And it was crazy for me because first of all, I've been a pastor for a couple months, so you know I I, I did nothing. To to earn this, and of course you you could never earn that sort of what they're trying to do, you know, in a good spirit, I think, of of honoring us. But the sound was unlike anything I think I've ever experienced. It was just, I mean, it felt like it was gonna literally move me backwards. In fact, it was so loud, one of the men from our church, I don't know why, he was in a tavern across the street during that exact moment. Um, that's a whole story in itself, I'm sure, and told us the story that the tavern owner said in all of his years of owning that tavern across the street from the Metrodome, that was the loudest he'd ever heard it. So it was amazing. The sound of their cheers was heard far away. So just imagine, more people than that, singing with celebrating together, no roof uh, over the heads, no dome. Two choirs on the wall, and of course, uh, uh, you know, just so many, uh, 100,000, we don't know, probably at least 100,000 or more people rejoicing together. But here's the question. Why were they so joyful? I mean, it's just a wall. It's not like a pretty new church building. It's just a wall. Well, uh, that is part of why they're rejoicing. There's more than that, though, but the wall itself, Right? We begin this story of Nehemiah with a damaged wall and they're in danger from their enemies. So they never know when the enemies are, are, are going to cross over and, and cause them great harm. But we also learn that they, they were demoralized by that. Remember, they were greatly discouraged because that, that begins to have an effect on you. That, that's, that's, that becomes your identity. Oh, we're the once great city with the broken wall. We're, we're the, the once great city that is weak and decimated and ready to be uh, overtaken at a moment's notice. That has an effect on you. They were, they were discouraged and demoralized. Um, but all that changed once the wall was completed. But I believe they're also rejoicing, not just because of the physical wall and all that it represents, but, but because of the widespread repentance of the people. Remember these, these, these movements? Uh, the, the first example of repentance was when they realized they were enslaving some of their fellow Jews because of the, the economic uh, disaster that was all of the city. And they repented of that and made everything right. And, and it was just an outpouring of, of, of joy and celebration because of that. Uh, then, just shortly after that, it was days or a week later or so, they build a giant tower for Ezra. He reads from the laws. And, and you've got... Uh, these roaming sort of interpreters, go over here, make sure you understand, go over here, make sure you understand, and then another massive outpouring of repentance of all kinds. And then, resolve that, they celebrate the Feast of Booths, which we are told, they build those little booths out of branches, we are told they had not celebrated to that degree for 900 years since the days of Joshua. So, you see, collectively, there was massive spiritual and cultural transformation. In a mere 52 days, all of this happened. So, so they, they, they were just a very, very different people. Uh, it's really hard to grasp how grateful they were for all of these changes. So, so the wall, the dedication to the wall, was yet, yet just but a symbol of all that God had accomplished for them. Which is why the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Just imagine the amount of pure joy flowing out of the city that day. Here's a vision for us to consider. What if Grace Church was so filled with joy that it was heard far away? What if people Began to hear stories about people in this church that they are joyful in times, yes, uh, uh, of, of abundance, but especially in time of trial. And I would wish that, not just on Grace church, but, 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 you know, we're just one of the churches in town. In every church, would, would the, the gospel would so penetrate us that joy would just be spilling out. And that's what was happening here this day. They, were so, they said they were singing songs of thanksgiving and thanksgiving. They were just so overfilled with joy. It just spilled out. I had a professor in, in undergrad, and he said, I want you to be... To be so filled with facts that if I, if I bumped into you, they would just sort of spill out the top of your head. That's the way it was. This joy was spilling out. What, what, what if we had that much joy? Twice in four or five years or so, I set forth a, a similar vision that our church could be known as the church whose husbands love their wives. I said, well, What is that? It's, it sounds too sim- simplistic. But, but it, you, just, you just have to let your mind go with that, right, for a bit. All of our husbands sacrificially loving our wives such that, what did I say? We're the church that's known as the husbands who love their wives. So, so again, people are talking out on the streets. What's going on? I don't know, but those husbands love their wives. Now, in saying that, I'm not implying we don't have husbands who love their wives. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, of course we do, and uh, I hope if you're married, you want to love your wife better. But but how do you know if you're you're, you're succeeding? Now nah, now nah, that gets a little dangerous, doesn't it? Um, guys are like, well, I'm out of here. Um, here's a question for you to consider. I think I, I posed this uh, posed this question before. Ask your wife if you consistently if she feels consistently cherished by you, okay? The word cherish is sort of uh, an application of love. It's very practical. It's more, it's something you can, I think, feel. So ask her if she feels consistently cherished by you, and you might want to take her out for dinner before you ask her that question. Just a little, you know, grease in the skids. But this vision... Of overflowing joy, do you see, it is very similar to being known as a church whose husbands love their wives. Because if our church, all the churches, were known as places where joy is heard far away, a place where the word gets out that, that I don't know what's happening there, but they're, they're spilling over with joy without even trying, this would have an evangelistic impact without even trying. Because this is what the world wants for themselves. They don't know where to find it, how to get it, where they can obtain it for their lives. But they want it. And because they don't know where to get it, that's why they they pursue sinful pursuits. Because they're trying to fill their lives with something, anything. Because they want what we have. They want peace and joy. The other thing that happened from the resounding joy in Jerusalem is that all their enemies heard them praising God. Remember that? Part part of the story here. They're surrounded on every side by their enemies. That's why they were so in danger from a a destroyed wall. Uh, And if the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away, it's certain that all the enemies also heard this. But here's another question. If your enemy enemy hears you rejoicing, is that really evangelism? Think about that. What, what sort of impact, right, is that having upon the enemies? Well, let's be clear about this. Rejoicing is a form of proclamation. The Jews were proclaiming God as their sovereign protector. They're singing songs about who God is and what he has done for them. That is proclamation. Whether or not it is received well by the hearer, it doesn't matter. It's still a proclamation. We always hope for those who hear the truth of God proclaimed would repent and believe. Of course we do. But most of the time, that just doesn't happen. Barring uh, a, a miraculous work of the Spirit, it doesn't happen that often. Nevertheless, the proclamation remains. And joy that is heard far away is a form of Proclamation. Some people will get angry at you when you share the gospel. Some people will get angry at you when you're joyful, right? They they can't stand a happy person. But the proclamation goes forth regardless. So that's happening here, but there's a lot more than proclamation happening here. I want to describe three key relationships in your life. And I don't mean like, I'm not going to name people, but three large areas of relationship uh, that impact all of us and how we work, how they work together. So you many of you remember this diagram that we'd used for years. Uh, so there's three key tasks that are bound up to the three key relationships. So abide, that's a key task in Christ. That's the relationship. So, so God is our relationship. That, that's the, the, the vertical relationship to God. Proclaim is a key task to the world. That's the relationship. So we have God, and we have the world, two tasks. And then love, in, in this context, the way we said it before, is love the body of Christ. Love fellow believers. So you've got God, uh, vertical. You've got fellow believers, horizontal. And you've got the world out there. And uh, not that long ago, we, we changed this a little bit to these three words. Gather in, grow up. And go out. We're hoping to hopefully communicate this better. So, we changed abide to grow. Uh, um, so, so, grow. Uh, sorry, uh, let, me, let me start with gather. Uh, we changed love to gather. So, so uh, gather is uh, the, the horizontal relationship. That's gathering with believers, that's our relationship with one another. And that's all of the one another. Anything's related to one another. Love one another. Um, live in harmony with one another, build one another up. Anything related on that plane is related to gather. We gather in. Gather is the task, and fellow believers are the relationship. So the growth then replaces the abiding in Christ. That's our vertical relationship with the Lord. So anything and everything related to our spiritual growth, which could include but not limited to Bible reading and prayer and worship and repentance We grow up in our relationship with Christ. Grow is the task, and God is the relationship. And then go replaces the proclaim. As Jesus said, go into all the world, or as you go into the world, preach the gospel. Go is the task, and the world is that key relationship. Okay, do you see it now? Three key tasks, three key relationships that apply to every believer. Let me explain now how all of that actually was happening in Jerusalem that day. All three were actually intimately woven together in their joy-filled worship. First of all, think about at the horizontal level, the, the, the gathering, how much they worked together, right? We've read the text, how every person, man, woman, it seems seemingly down to every child working on the wall, swords strapped to their side, ready to defend themselves. You've got other men with, with spears and, and chain mail, uh, ready to defend the city. All that, that, that process was like a, a symphony of perfect coordination. Uh, they, they struggled and strived day after day, sun up uh, to, to sun down. Now, while it can't possibly compare... Again, the the, the closest, just just as my my time at the Metrodome was as close as I'll ever get to to this, uh, the closest I'll ever get to building a wall like that would be having a part in building this church building. Many of you may not realize that approximately 70% of this building was built with sweat equity by our folks here that were here at the time. Many, many are still here. And then they had a lot of help from other churches from around our Wisconsin district. And even if you didn't do that, we all know what it's like to, to labor side by side with somebody on an important project, right? Because you have a goal in mind and, and you see this thing coming together and you've got lots of conversation going between you and it just has a marvelous bonding impact uh, for you, like, like little, little else can in life. Speaking of which, this is a good time to give a brief update on the possible building expansion. If you recall last March, we talked about that at our, Congregational meeting, and we formed. We all agreed to form what we're calling a building exploratory team because we're just exploring the possibility. It's really a feasibility study. We're asking the question: Is this even remotely feasible? What might this look like? Uh, how can we afford it? How much can it? Will it might cost? Those sorts of questions. So I just want to let you know the team has been actually working very hard, it's really fun working on that team, and I think they've made some really excellent progress, and uh, apologies to the team that's here, uh, I, I uh, texted them and said that I won't share any diagrams, but uh, I sort of changed my mind here, so I want to um, show a little something, um, you'll, you'll forgive me, I think, um, so this is our current level we're on here, so uh, to your right is, is the sanctuary, and uh, let me shrink that down so I can add, add the addition. out before I show this, again, right, rough draft, all right, like how it connects and, and all that sort of thing. So just, you know, you've got to be patient with, with the team. But, but here's what we have so far. Everybody on board? Huh? Amen. Uh, we got all, all yeas, No no nays. All right. So, you know, let me say, Uh, October 22nd Congregational Meeting, Lord willing, we will have a rough draft for you to consider. So so that's fun. Uh, But but that is what we want. We want just more and more people worshiping Jesus. And remember, for for the Jews, this building the wall and what they're celebrating, the building the wall itself was a very spiritual experience. You might remember this from from chapter 4. And we prayed to God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So they're, they're building, they're watching for enemies, and they're praying like crazy. That's intentionally, in, intensely spiritual. And that's uh, chapter 4. All the way back to chapter 2, we, we see this report from Nehemiah. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. Why were they why were they ready to rise up and build? Because they saw God's hand on everything that was about to happen. And it had happened up until that point. This was a spiritual endeavor from start to finish. And, and I think gratitude was at the core of the celebration. They're, they're singing songs of thanks. They were so, so grateful. They prayed to God. They trusted God. God protected them, almost supernaturally allowed them to complete this wall in a mere 42 days. And we cannot forget uh, verse 42. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Why? Why? for God had made them rejoice with great joy. Has anyone ever made you rejoice? You can't coerce joy, can you? It's not saying God coerced them to be joyful. What it's saying is that God did all this for them and in them such that, as I've been saying, it created within them joy such that it just spilled out, just bumping into into each other and the joy is spilling out. So what they did, back to this, they gathered in with one another, they grew up in their relationship with the Lord, and all that resulted in it going out of a proclamation of joy. All of those key relationships and tasks were happening that day. So these, these three are, are truly inseparable. Now, now having said that, not all of your Bible reading, all of your prayer, that sort of thing can be done in like groups, Right? Some of it has to be done on your own. You, we've got to develop habits. We talk a lot, lot about that. Uh, so we have our, our disciplines and habits that are, that are healthy. Uh, but I would argue that most growth happens as we're together with other believers. So when we say gather, don't make the mistake and think, well, oh, you mean on Sunday morning. No, I mean anytime time believers are gathered together, two people, three people, 10 people, 20 people, that's gathering. And by the way, you understand the bigger a church grows, the smaller you got to go. Any church that gets over the, the experts say about 70, uh, that, that's all. That's all the people you can know. I mean, you, you can't even know 70 people uh, very well. Um, so you get into smaller groups, whatever you call that. You know, some of you still have a uh, Brian and Andy. You still Bible buddies, pretty much. Yes. All right. All right. Say. Enthusiastically, yeah. We had that a few years ago, and that, whether, whether they're still, you know, super consistent, uh, that sort of bound, bonded them together, you know, all those uh, sorts of opportunities uh, to, to do things together that way. Um, and when you um, combine, gather, grow, and go together, what you have is what we call discipleship. It's as simple as that. You say, well, what is discipleship? It's these key three tasks in aiming at these three key relationships and trying to to balance, to strive for a balance of all three, which is which is hard. I mean, you're always going to have a weakest link. You know, even if all three are super uh, well done, there's going to be one that's weaker. And any guesses which one is weaker for Grace Church? It's the go. It's almost always the go. The evangelism is difficult. Uh, you know, as, as Seth was saying, you, you hear the word evangelism and whew, Oh, man, I just start sweating right away. It's just, it's just, it's so frightening, which is why we want to, we have this, this, this group we call Equip. We want to equip you, me, better to have conversations, conversational evangelism, conversations about Jesus. What's that look like? Well, give you a quick example. Just last night, I'm at a, a wedding uh, reception, and uh, a person that I'd met once before was telling me this story when he was a young boy, Climbed up into the hay loft uh, to get a pitchfork his dad had asked for, and there, as bright as can be, is Jesus. He's, he's telling me this. He said it was just the top half of Jesus, whatever that was about, and he believes it. I mean, that, this is this is still like you know this is like the core of, of his faith, but it happened when he was a boy. So I just simply asked him, "Well, what does Jesus mean to you today?" And then started a conversation. You know, we didn't get all the way to the gospel, but it, but it was, it was a good conversation. It's taking advantage of those things, equipping all of us, again, including me, to more effectively do it together. Seth and I heard a, an amazing, I would call, it, a discipleship story this past week. We we're uh, in a Zoom call with a pastor in Kentucky, and he was telling us about this ministry they've had in their church for many years, which we uh, hope, Lord willing, to to emulate uh, at some point. And the, the 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 ministry is they take all their youth from ages seven to twelfth grade, and it was a larger church. So they had a lot of the older generation, uh, you know, more more maybe a senior generation, and they would become prayer partners. The older generation were committed to pray for all this all these youth. And every last one of them was covered. And, you no, know, you could sort of do with it what you want, but certainly you're committed to praying for them. Some would would you know, get together occasionally, and, and this pastor was telling us about his 17-year-old son who was paired with a 93-year-old gentleman. And uh, at one point, he, he wanted to take the, the young boy out to lunch, and so he suggested Mexican, and, he, and this older gentleman wasn't really... Familiar with Mexican, so he went out. And he loved it, so they always go out to eat at Mexican. And, uh, but, but here's what's happening. The old gentleman is beginning to decline, and he's, he's, he's going down that hill. And so the pastor said to his son recently, you know, the, the roles are going to reverse soon, where you are going to do most of the praying and most of the encouraging. And I thought, wow. What a powerful story. Imagine the impact on that young man. That that he had this person, this wonderful man, praying for him and and caring about him. But but now now he gets to do the same in that that wonderful multi-generational ministry that, that we aim for as well at Grace Church. Do you think if we could... Multiply that, I don't mean just that, but multiply that sort of ministry over and over and over. What what are we going to get? We're going to get joy heard far away. Let's pray. Father, we, we all know what true rejoicing and joy feels like? I'm not sure if any of us know what that much joy feels like. We're not even sure how, how to get it, but, but I think you've laid out for us the sort of hard, cultivating work of these important relationships that, that we not ignore any of them, but it's empowered by, by you, all of it, the difficulty of it, the, the establishment of habits, the, the fears that, that we lay before you and say, I, I, I can't do this, I've never done this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your sovereign revealed will and your word. Lord, help us to submit to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.